today on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. We open our doors again to one of our top Patreon supporters. This time, we sit down and chat with William Welch, who has been invited to join me to talk about and play some of his favorite film music tracks. This is part one of a two-part series. I really hope you enjoy the show, the chat, and the music. This is the flagship show on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast, which begins now. Since 1996, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, to the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Woods, and on today's program, I'll be presenting a special show. My guest will be one of our biggest Patreon supporters, and we'll be talking to him in just a moment. But before I begin, I'd like to invite you to join our Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast Patreon at patreon.com slash cinematic sound radio for just as low as a dollar a month your money goes towards supporting the show by helping to pay for server space domain registrations and new equipment when needed and various other things we also have a thriving community over there right now and we have new patrons signing up each and every week offering their support and they're getting some great benefits for their donations including an opportunity to program their own show uh, you can also participate in the All Request programs. You can also listen to old Cinematic Sound Radio FM broadcasts from my days back at C101.5 FM in Hamilton, Ontario. And on top of that, we'll be introducing a brand new Patreon-only program. It's where I do a deep, deep dive into my collection and play some stuff that you've never heard on the show before, but you can only hear that show if you are a patron of Cinematic Sound Radio. We also love hearing from you, so let us know what you think of the show. Uh, I really do mean that. All of the hosts here at Cinematic Sound Radio love hearing from our listeners, so if you like what you hear, then drop us a line. It only takes a few minutes, and trust me, hearing from you inspires us all and really keeps us going. So if you have anything to say, please send it to Cinematic Sound at yahoo.com. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcatcher. Uh, it really does help new listeners discover the show and informs them of what the show was all about. So on the program today is uh, one of our top Patreon supporters, William Welch. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you very much, Eric, for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. It's been a long time in the making. <laughs> I think I promised this to you about six months ago, and it's just been absolute chaos uh, since then. But I'm glad that we were able to uh, uh, finally connect and and get this uh, get this show on the road. And looking at your playlist, I'm actually really excited to to talk about all these tracks. But before we get to that, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um. 
Yep, so um, probably can tell by the accent, I'm not from Canada, not from America, I'm from, <laughs> from the UK. Um, and uh, yeah, currently I um, I live with my wife and two kids. I've got a um, three and five year old, so they tend to keep me uh, quite busy. Um, but um, I've always had always had a, a, a love and a fascination with music, um, all, all kinds of music. I mean, I'm obviously here to talk about uh, film music and play some film music and and that is an absolute um passion of mine but but just in general there's there's always music on um most of it my wife doesn't like and she sort of shouts at me and says what's this why are you playing this it sounds awful so um but music is always on um and i am to a certain extent a musical person i am um, learned um piano uh, from the age of seven um and then Latterly, I learned um, clarinet. Um, basically, my piano teacher said, you'll be lonely if you only play the piano, you'll be lonely because all you'll do is play on your own. She said, you need to go away and play an orchestral instrument. So I learned um, clarinet as well. Um, so, um, yeah, I have, I have music in me, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> so can, like, besides just playing an instrument, I mean, are you... Um... Have you learned musical theory? Like when you're listening to score, can you discern certain chords or or scales or things of that sort? Yes. Yeah, so um, obviously you learn a lot just by learning an instrument. You learn things like reading music, understanding um, time signatures, um, you know, dynamics, the, the whole lot. Um, so you, you learn a lot from that. But then um, sort of outside of that, Certainly, for me anyway, um, I like to know things, so I will go and learn about things, whether it's watch a YouTube video, listening to you know someone being interviewed about how they did something, reading um, full scores, dissecting things. Uh, to be honest, sometimes, it sounds like a silly issue, but sometimes I have a problem listening to music because mentally I'm dissecting it as I'm listening to it. So I can't always enjoy, especially the first time I hear something, I can't always enjoy it because I'm thinking, well, why is that there? Or why is this instrument doing that? Or why have they paired a, a flute and an oboe? Or, you know, so, um, yeah, I know quite a bit, but I'm always learning. I'm always interested Um in in hearing what other people say and what other people can can sort of teach me um certainly technologically i'm not there you know i don't have a home studio i don't do any of that kind of thing i don't have loads of samples and all of that for me it's all about just seeing a piano and, and, and playing the piano um uh, and and whether that's you know mozart jazz or just noodling away or playing you know john williams or something it's yeah i don't know it's it's just um, enjoyment. I get enjoyment from it, but it it can also be um, almost therapeutic sometimes. You know, if I've had a bad day, especially if there's no one in the house. But if I've had a bad day, come home, play something relaxing, calm me on the on the piano, and it will literally calm you down. Um, interesting. Do you do you pick up like music melodies easily? Is it something that you can then go to the piano and play it? Like, do you have perfect pitch? Um, what sort of what's your musical ability? No, so um, it's funny because when I was at school, I had a, a very good friend of mine who was um, a taught drummer, but he wanted to 
play piano. So his piano was taught by ear. You know, he used to listen to things like Elton John and Billy Joel and stuff like that and, and would learn music on the piano that way. It was my, um, my training uh, for piano was completely um, traditional, classical and, and all of that. So I, I learned to read music and go through all of that. Um, what I struggled with um, for a long time was picking up things effectively by ear, which lots of people are very good at. I'm better now, particularly if I can get the starting note. So something that I find helps me is if I can listen to a piece of music and, and pick out the starting note, hum the starting note, if I know that's A or C or something, obviously I know where that is on the keyboard. From there, I can, you know, give it five, 10 minutes. I can roughly work out, you know, the intervals between the notes and I can kind of work out how the melody goes. And depending on how complex it is, obviously the harder it is, the longer it might take you. But I've, I've kind of got a bit better at that. Um, but it's that kind of thing's not easy. So people that, that can just pick up things by ear and, and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's um, that's that's quite talented. Do you find that um, like, are you able to kind of turn it off when you're listening to music if you want to? Or do you find that you have to really pay attention when you're listening to something? Or can you just listen to something for like enjoyment without sort of dissecting it, you know, with your music theory? Yes, but it probably depends on what I listen to. So, you know, um, take one of my favourite John Williams scores, Hook. I know that back to front, left and right, sideways, you know, I will put that on and that's just beautiful background music. I, I don't dissect that because I've heard it so many times. I know what's coming and I can just listen to that. Whereas if um, uh, tomorrow there was a new score released and it was, I don't know, something Harry Gregson Williams new score I'd listen to that and immediately my brain was thinking well what's going on here what, you know why have they done this why is it this style and yeah so it it tends to be if I've heard the score enough I can just sit back and listen to it um and let it sort of just become sort of wallpaper almost whereas if it's if it's a new score one I don't know that well my brain for some reason just it wants to try and understand what's going on and um and sometimes you know I, I sort of think well why has it done that or the opposite this is amazing i wouldn't change anything it's just fantastic so is there a particular style of music do you like that like do you like all kinds of styles of music and i'm and i'm probably going to go into more film music styles than just ordinary um you know just music in general but like do you are you geared more towards one type of style? And if you hear a particular style that you don't like or a chord structure or whatever, that's a major turnoff or can you just enjoy all types of film music? There is very little um, music in general, but in particular film music, there's very little film music. I, I don't get some enjoyment out of, um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to name scores, but yeah, there are some scores that I think don't uh, warrant listening to. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So let's kind of just, before we get into your, your, your track list here, uh, wh where did your love of film music come from? Like what was the first score you heard or wh what was it? How old were you? Um, what made you fall in love with this art form? I am not a hundred percent sure. It It kind of leads into... Funny enough, the first track I'd, I'd picked, um, but 
films and all kinds of films were were part of growing up um i never really went to the cinema certainly as much as i do now you know as a, an, an adult but um cinema wasn't necessarily a thing but there was always time to watch films at home you know get vhs's out and stick them in and um all kinds of different films um lots of old films obviously um you know sort of late 80s early 90s lots of more current films but um i don't know where my love of film music came from necessarily but i grew up as i've sort of said you know playing and and sort of studying classical music um and i think in particular i'm i'm always interested in things from sort of um russia you know tchaikovsky and shostakovich um that kind of thing and i think um i may have even sort of um said this when i picked one of the tracks on the sort of um patreon shows but um that kind of almost led into early film music because you know some of these early film composers were from Eastern Europe, they moved over um, uh, to America and started um, scoring films. And I think actually there is um, a definite um, sort of thread that you can pick from some of those classical composers through into some of the early film composers. And then obviously that goes on and, and becomes something else. So I, I think it was probably that. I think it was the understanding of um, sort of classical music, watching um, classic films and then realising there's music here and this music isn't that different to what I would sometimes normally listen to so you know let's go and start having a, a better listen to that you know properly dig into film music find out who who some of these people are you know th th there were people uh, Vaughan Williams for instance who people know as a classical composer really did some fantastic scores um, so there was a, a sort of a crossover in certainly in that earlier um, film scoring period. But um, yeah, I guess I guess that's kind of where where my love comes from. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it makes sense. Um, and and I, it's a, that's an interesting story because because most pe most people can really just kind of pinpoint that that one movie or that one score that just kind of sets them off. And it's interesting how your love of classical music kind of rolled over. Um, into film music through those classical greats who then dabbled into film music. And then you found that film music can also, um, you know, provide you with that same type of enjoyment. Um, and, and I, and I find that's, that's a, that's probably one of the most unique answers um, I've heard uh, to that question. So uh, the playlist that you brought with, uh, with brought with you today, um, is there anything you want to tell us about it before we get into the first track? Um, not really. It's it's kind of um, uh, my sort of idea behind a, a theme was to sort of give a, a selection of music that kind of is associated to me or means stuff to me. Um, so it's kind of a bit of a trawl through my life sort of kind of thing. So um, so, yeah, uh, just some what I think is some some good music and, and hopefully stuff that, that people will uh, really enjoy. So yeah, there's not a lot of uh, I would say obvious selections in your in your list, which get which got me really excited. So when I went through and listened to all these tracks uh, over the past couple of days, um, I'm actually really excited to 
to one, let the, have the audience listen to them. And I, I'm kind of curious as to why you picked them. So your first uh, selection is actually really, really unique because it comes from a Golden Age classic, uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood, written by Eric Wolfgang Korngold. But it, it's not the original recording. It's it's not off the the complete re-recording. Um, but it's it's a selection that comes off. I think it's a dynamite album uh, with John Williams uh, recording with the London Symphony Orchestra called the Hollywood Sound. So this is Robin Hood and his Merry Men. Uh, tell us a little bit about this track and why you picked it. Um, uh, yeah, I'll I'll go back to the film and the composer in a second. But I think you hit on, um, or rather, hitting the nail on the head there. It's a dynamite CD. Um, just just a. a Brilliant CD for anyone that hasn't got it. The Hollywood Sound um, uh, with John Williams conducting the London Symphony Orchestra. And there's a whole bunch of classic scores. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, Out of Africa. Um, yeah, just um, just a whole load on here. But um, Robin Hood was um, certainly, from my memory, a film we watched a lot uh, when I was young, I, I don't remember the first time I saw it, but just I don't know. There was something about the film, the the sort of colourfulness and the um, it was just I don't know. It was different at, at the time, I suppose. Maybe this kind of you know, as I say, late eighties, early nineties. Maybe maybe there weren't sort of films like this. I don't know. There was something about it that just captured my imagination. And obviously, there's some great um, acting in it. Errol Flynn's great. Um, Olivia De Havilland and of course Basil Rathbone um, playing the villain is is great. Um, and and the score just I don't know. There was something about it that just captured me. It's that um, you know, going back to what I was saying, it's that classical thing. It just sounds fantastic. It's just the the way the score was put together. Um, you know, it's obviously very orchestral. Um, yeah, I just um, I just absolutely love this score. Um, and I knew when when I sort of figured out what I wanted this playlist to sort of be about, what what sort of theme there might be. Um, I, I knew that this score had to be on there. Uh, I mean, it's a, a classic score for for anyone that doesn't own the score. It's it's a classic score, um, and and still to this day, oh, beats beats loads of scores. It's just fantastic, um, and and like you said, I I, I picked this track because I, I was struggling to pick a track off the the album, off the soundtrack, and I thought I'm just I don't know. I'm just not sure what I'm going to pick. And I suddenly remembered that I've got this CD somewhere. Um, and, and I thought at the time, yeah, I think there's a track on there um, from this film. And um, I don't know whether, uh, I suppose, interesting to get your take on this, but I don't know whether it almost sounds like John Williams. I know obviously John Williams is conducting it, so maybe he's put a bit of his own stamp on it. But, but the actual music, you almost could imagine knowing that Williams conducts it, that it is John Williams. And I suppose that shows how his, um, John Williams's style has come from those um, great film composers. Um, but I just thought that the sound quality in this is great. The, 
the um the orchestra sounds great and i just thought it, it's a great pick and it um highlights this particular sound, uh, um, cd which is a fantastic cd um and one that i think people should get if they don't have it in their collection yeah it's um I, I, I hear you when, when you're talking about the arrangement. Um, I, I don't have the CD in front of me. I know that Angela Morley did a lot of uh, John Williams' arrangements for, for these albums and um, his Boston Pops albums as well. But it's such a, it's such a unique um, project because, you know, he's recording with the LSO and this is, what, three years before he goes back and records... Um, the Phantom Menace. And so he's kind of reteaming with them because he, I don't think he worked with them after the, the, the uh, early to mid eighties again. And so for him to go back and, I mean, I think the recording of star Wars is absolutely brilliant on this, um, on this album. It's one of my favorites, but yeah, it's an interesting mix of it's Academy award winners. Um, I think that's the theme of it. And there's some real interesting arrangements and and picks and you're just kind of like oh well this john williams knows about you know does he knows about pocahontas and he knows about spellbound and out of africa and you know even the best years of our lives which i'm like wow holy smokes he's gonna re-record these for us but um but yeah it's um i think it's an absolutely stellar album and when i got it for the first time i'm pretty sure it was 1996 i just played it over and over and over again but you're you're right it definitely has a a John Williams um, style to it. Do you own any other uh, Adventures of Robin Hood uh, recordings in your collection? Um, yeah, so um, I, I haven't got it to hand, but I do have the um, uh, the complete um, re-recording, um, presumably the same one that you've got. Yeah, there's one by um, William Stromberg. Um, and... Uh, there's also a shorter suite that was done with the Utah Symphony, which is brilliant. And of course, there's a bunch of suites with Charles um, Charles Gerhardt, uh, which all sound magnificent. So, yeah, it was just kind of interesting to know why this tr- particular track, um, you know, caught your fancy. Yeah, I I, th- I think it's just it it sounds so alive. You know, when 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 we listen to it in a minute, it would just sound. As I say, to me, it sounds almost like John Williams had composed it the day before he recorded it. It's the music is that good, um, and and the way the orchestra plays it is is that good. It it's just um, just amazing. Um, interesting. You mentioned uh, Angela Morley. Um, I've got the um, CD in front of me, and there's um, two tracks, no, three tracks on here that say specifically arranged by Angela Morley. Um, the Last Emperor theme. Um, the Wizard of Oz and the Best Years of Our Lives theme. Um, and there's a couple others that are arranged by other people as uh, Michael Starobin. Um, but this this particular one, The Adventures of Robin Hood, um, which is called Robin Hood and His Merry Men, um, doesn't have anything next to it. So I don't know whether that means Q. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe. Uh, fascinating. Uh, absolutely fascinating. Well, here uh, is is your first track. It's the... Uh, Adventures of Robin Hood, composed by Eric Wolfgang Korngold, uh, conducted by John Williams, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra from the Hollywood Sound album. The track is Robin Hood and His Merry Men. 
All right. Up next, we're going to uh, listen to my, another favorite of mine and another favorite <laughs> recording of mine. I think that this might be one of the 10 best uh, re-recordings of all time. And if you don't own this album, uh, I highly recommend you do. Uh, the score is Ivanhoe, released in 1952, composed by Miklos Rocha. And this uh, this re-recording comes from Intrada Records. It is absolutely brilliant. Now, I own the original soundtrack recording, which I'm pretty sure was released on on Rhino Records, and I'm, I'm glad to have it. But to hear this score recorded with, you know, modern day acoustics and recording techniques, it's uh, it's a revelation. It, it just, the score comes alive. So uh, tell us why uh, you picked this score and why you picked the track Challenge and Finale. Um, uh, thanks, Eric. I'm glad you feel exactly the same way about this CD that I do. Um, it's a absolutely fantastic CD. And I think uh, in particular, some of these early um, soundtracks that end up being re-recorded, um, I think benefits from the, the sound quality. And I think the sound quality on this is amazing. Um, conducted, uh, interestingly, by Bruce Broughton, who obviously we know as a, a film composer in, in his own right. Um, I suppose um, maybe the film's not dissimilar to um, Robin Hood. In a sense, it's a historical epic. Um, and I don't want to say <laughs> growing up, that's all I watched. But um, I think there was a sense of um, watching lots of sort of classic films like um, Ivanhoe, um, Captain Blood, um, Revenge of Robin Hood, stuff like that. It was just, there was something fun about it. You know, it was it was glamorous. It, it looked great on screen. Um, obviously, again, has some, has some fantastic um, actors. Um, I hadn't seen this film for quite a long time. Um, and I had planned to, if I could, re-watch everything um, in, in the playlist I made. So I sort of re-remembered what the film was like if it was one I hadn't seen for quite a long time. And funnily enough, um, the BBC over here in, in, in England played this um, over Christmas. So I watched it again first time for a long time and it, and it was still fantastic, still looked great. Um, and it's just, the score is just absolutely fantastic. Um, I possibly would say it's my favourite Nicholas Rocha score. Um, he is of this early period of, of sort of um, film scorers, composers. He is probably my favourite. Um, you know, if, if you're talking about sort of Korngold, Steiner, uh, um, Newman, uh, people like that, then I think for me, Rocha does does the scores that, that sort of resonate with me the most. Um, I think this score is is just just an absolute knockout score it's full of orchestral flair um fun um it, it hits all of the right notes at the right time it's just just a fantastic score and it's it's interesting what um Miklos Rosa himself has to say about the score um and for anyone who doesn't have it who is interested there's an interesting autobiography by Miklos Rosa from the early 80s called Double Life um, uh, and um, if I can just uh, quote briefly from it, he says here, um, uh, I had uh, become apparently a specialist in historical pictures, much to my delight. 
whether as films they were good or bad, the subject matter was invariably interesting and worth spending time on. Such a picture was Ivanhoe. The book was a favourite of my youth, in Hungarian translation of course. I reread my Scott and was again delighted. When I read the script, I was less delighted. It was a typical Hollywood historical travesty, and the picture for the most part was cliché-ridden and conventional. So I turned back to Scott, and Scott it was, rather than Robert or even Elizabeth Taylor, who inspired my music. Um, he goes on to talk briefly about sort of medieval music source and, and how he tries to um, make his, his music sort of fit the roughly the sort of style of, of what would have been expected. But I just like the fact that he, he scores this with a brilliant score, and yet he basically says the film's not very good. And, and I think that's just fascinating uh, and amazing that, that he can watch this and think, I'm going to put this brilliant score to it, but really, the film's a load of rubbish. I, I just that that is fascinating. Um, I've always I've always wondered, and I'm I'm glad you said that quote because I've always wondered, especially with composers like you know Jerry Goldsmith or or you know Robert Falk who did their um, it did plenty of uh, scores for absolutely horrible movies. But it, it, it what their what their motivation is, what inspires them, and to hear that you know the script obviously didn't inspire him. Um, it, it, he knew it was going to be lame, but he was able to find inspiration through either, you know, the actors or, or maybe the cinematography. And, and I'd always wanted to ask that of other composers, like, you know, you worked on this absolute dog's breakfast, but you know, you wrote this amazing score. What was it about it? I've also wondered whether, you know, composers know that they are just working on, on an absolute turd, but they realize that, okay, you know what? I'm being paid for this. I'm going to do my best. I'm not necessarily going to save the film, but I'm going to write music for myself. I'm just going to write the best music that I can because that's what I'm hired for. And even if the film sucks, I know that what I'm doing is going to be great. I think uh, that's a very interesting point because I don't know how I would feel Um if I wrote a score to something or attempted to write a score to something that ultimately I didn't really like. Um, and I wonder whether now it's, it's maybe a lot easier um, to just churn stuff out because it's, um, it's getting paid for a job maybe. Um, and I wonder whether people like um, Rosa and some of those earlier composers, maybe they thought of it almost like, um, I don't know, writing another symphony or something. Maybe they thought, irrespective of how the film is, I'm going to write brilliant music and that music potentially can can stand on its own. I mean, it is interesting because Corncold himself, um, I believe, was um, uh, quoted as saying something like um, uh, that the, the, the music must fit the picture, but yes, yet must also be heard away from the picture. So his idea was that the music should stand the, the test of time and, and should still be listened to long after the film's gone. And, and I think <clears throat> some of these early scores like, like Ivanhoe do that. You know, you could put this on and, and listen to that and, and it's just as fantastic as it is when it's, um, fitting the, the, the film itself. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know, but I, I can only sort of 
wonder that maybe that's that's the route um someone like Rosa took he just went i'm going to write some great music and and you know someone will listen to it and think that music is great irrespective of whether the film's any good or not i think a lot of those um golden age composers uh felt very uh similar to that uh to that thought that Korngold had i know alex north did um you know he talked about it uh during a interview when they were recording um, the 2001 A Space Odyssey uh, for Verez Saraband Records. And, you know, he talked about, you know, I, that, that he'd hoped that composers were, one, yeah, writing for the film, but that they were also, you know, writing for themselves. That there was artistic integrity. It was still alive back then, that they all, they all really cared about their work. I'm not saying that they don't nowadays, but there, but there was a sense of, I'm going to write the best piece of music. I mean, that's going to fit the film, but I'm going to write the best piece of music I can right now. Then I'm going to go on to that next project and I'm going to write the best piece of music that I can for that project. And I I get that for all of these uh, golden age composers that no matter what project they're working on, no matter how big or small it was, um, they always were, I mean, they weren't writing home runs all the time. Like they weren't writing classics like Ivanhoe all the time, but you can get a sense that, you know, they would, dig in deep and they were working as hard as they could. Yeah. And I think um, it, it's interesting when you, when you actually um, sort of see um, where he gets some of his ideas and his music from, because he talks specifically about Ivanhoe. He talks about um, the principal Norman theme on this. He developed from a, a Latin hymn. Um, and then um, later on, he talks about um, uh, a theme for Rebecca um, and, and she needed a Jewish theme that reflected the tragedy of the character, but also the persecution of her race and fragments of medieval Jewish motifs suggested a melody to him. So not only is he a picking uh, to score a film or, or, or agreeing to score a film um, where he doesn't really think too much to the film, but he's then going in depth at looking at how he can score this um, perfectly, how he can get the the most out of the music. Um, you know, he's going off to the Royal Library of Brussels and finding manuscripts and looking at melodies. And you know, it's almost like a trip down um, history for him to to get to the point where he's got enough in him to say, okay, now I'm going to put pen to paper. So he's done a lot of work to score this film that he himself says wasn't very good. And I think that's absolutely incredible. Just, I don't know, fascinating. I, I could, I could talk about that kind of thing forever. It's just, it, it fascin, fascinates me and and boggles me as well that that people would do that. Um, and I suspect some of today's composers may not quite um, see it in in the same way. <laughs> no, and I, I think you are absolutely correct. And it, you're right. It is absolutely, uh, it's absolutely fascinating. And I mean, and and who would have thought that you know this music would I mean, back, written back in 1952 and, you know, they're writing music for the film, but essentially for themselves as well. And hopefully that it's going to be heard by, by people for, for many, uh, for many decades to come. And, you know, here we are in 2022 talking about, you know, a film made in 1952 and we're listening to, well, we're going to be listening to 
um, a wonderful track, which is at the end of this absolutely brilliant uh, re-recording. And I'm going to have to give a shout out uh, just before we play it to uh, a friend of the show, Mike Ross Trevor, who recorded this album, uh, an absolute brilliant uh, recording engineer. Uh, he recorded the, the London Symphonia Orchestra at Abbey Road Studios. And again, um, as you said, Will, uh, Bruce Broughton is conducting the orchestra. This is a 1994 recording that did get um, a remastering a few years ago through Entrada Records. It, it sounds as, as good as it can. It sounds like it was recorded yesterday. And so um, I cannot wait for you to listen to right now Challenge and Finale from Ivanhoe by Mikolas Rocha.
From Kitchener, Ontario, Canada, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. And you're listening to The Flagship Show with Eric Woods. Up next is uh, music from John Williams. Surprisingly, it's not from Hook, but it is from a film that seems to have had a, a resurgent resurgence as of late, um, mainly due to uh, John Williams uh, writing an arrangement of... Uh, of the theme from the long goodbye for uh, Anne Sophie Muter in uh, in concert, and uh, which is actually very interesting. Um, but um, this isn't a score that I listen to very often, so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about the score and why you picked this particular performance of the theme from the Quartet Records album. Um, yeah, first, um, sorry to disappoint people who follow me on Twitter who know I talk a lot about Hook, which is one of my favourite John Williams scores ever. Um, I didn't want to be quite so um, obvious and, and, and play something from that. <laughs> um, but um, I will say that this film and score are, in my opinion, absolutely breathtaking. Um, take you back a bit. Growing up, my dad... Um, uh, to be fair, family in general read or read, you know, a lot. So there's always a book on the go. Even now, I've always got a book on the go, whether it's a, a novel or, you know, film music book or you know, autobiography, whatever. Um, and my dad was always into, or is still, uh, apologies, <laughs> um, always into um, uh, old, old books. So he'll read Dickens and, and stuff like that. And his favourite book is Moby Dick. Um, and that's all stuff I, I haven't read. I'm, to be honest, not really interested in that kind of stuff. But he did introduce me to noir and thrillers and sort of PI stuff and Raymond Chandler. Um, so growing up, obviously, I whizzed through all of those fantastic books um, for anyone that's interested and not read them they are really good books well worth going to check out um, and and once I got more into films and, and cinema and stuff I thought well you know I'm gonna have to sort of check out some of the films of books that I know and read and um, so I've got um, somewhere I've got a collection of, of DVDs of all except I think one of the Raymond Chandler adaptations. I think there was a film made, which I've never seen, with James Garner. I think it's called Marlowe. And, and I just don't think it's available to buy. Um, and it's never on TV, so I've never seen it. Um, so bar that, I've got um, all of the other ones. And, and this long goodbye for me, and I know purists might say something like The Big Sleep with Bogard, but for me, long, long goodbye is the perfect... Um, adaptation of uh, Raymond Chandler. Um, I think Elliot Gould in it is just superb. He he is, for me, Philip Marlowe. And yeah, they they take some liberties, you know, they update the film, but, but it's done in an interesting way. So the film is very much the 70s film, but Marlowe is set back in his time. He spends the entire film chain smoking. But if you watch, no one else smokes in the film. No one. And there's some hippies that do drugs and there's all sorts of stuff goes on. But the only person that smokes is Marlo. And Marlo drives this old car. And again, he's the only one. Everyone else is in 70s cars and everything. So 
it very much is a film that puts Marlowe in in him and his period, but then transports that into a 70s film. And um, it's it's one I've watched a number of times. I did rewatch it um, in, in preparation for this and, and it still blew me away. Um, just everything about it. And, and the idea behind the score, again, is a fascinating one because Robert Altman, the director who had worked with um, Williams before, and it's gone out of my head. I think, Eric, you'll have to say, was it Images or something? What was the film they worked on before? I think it was Images. Um, I'm just going to have to quickly check up on that. Um, no, but you're right. Yeah, 19, uh, 1972 was Images. Yeah, yeah. So, so the two of them have worked together before. So, you know, they obviously had some kind of, um, uh, you know, working relationship. And um, his idea, Robert Altman's idea to um, John Williams was a song. Write me a song. And that is the music you will hear in this film. And I think a perfect example of that is the opening 10 minutes. Um, and, and, and the only different music you get is um, a song called Hooray for Hollywood, which is at the very opening of the film and the very end of the film. So the first piece of music you hear is Hooray for Hollywood and the last piece of music you hear is Hooray for Hollywood. Other than that, everything else in this film is the one song, The Longer Goodbye, in different um, arrangements. So the first opening 10 minutes of the film starts with... Um, Marlowe in bed and his cat wakes him up. And in the background, you you can't, you, you almost aren't sure where it is, whether it's on the radio or just in the background, ever so slightly there's some jazz playing and that's the long goodbye. And then um, Marlowe decides that um, the cat's hungry. So he tries to feed the cat and um, the cat doesn't want the, the cat food he's got because he only likes curry brown cat food. So Marlowe then has to go out and, and, he, and he goes out and he gets in his car and as he gets in his car, bang, the song starts and there's a woman singing and he's driving along and you've got this, the same melody, but you've got this song playing. And then you cut to someone else, uh, Terry Lennox, in a car who's driving to Marlowe's apartment. And when you cut to him, bang, you get a different version. You get a male singer. I think it's Jack um, Sheldon. He's singing the song that is playing while Terry Lennox is in the car. And then when Marlowe pulls up at the supermarket and goes into the supermarket, you then get this sort of lift music, violin style playing in the supermarket. But again, it's still the same song. And this is all just in the, the opening 10 minutes. And I don't know, you can probably hear the passion in me, but it's just, it's just a fantastic idea of you write me a song and then you've got that melody and, and harmony to, to then do the whole rest of the song, uh, a whole rest of the, the, the film and the score. And, and there are some bits that are, you know, there's a, there's a Mexican bit and it sounds very much Mexican, but it is still that theme. Um, I think for me, you would struggle to do that without a very good song in the first instance. And again, personally for me, I love the song, you know, the minute, the minute sort of the, the chord start or the, or even the film starts, I, I can hear it in my head uh, immediately. Those, those sort of words, 
you know, it's the long goodbye and it happens every day. And, and, and it just, it just starts and it's just, it's just perfect for me. And the relationship, uh, funnily enough, there's three um, films on this list where, um, where I think the relationship between the music and the film is so important that one couldn't work without the other. And I think this is one of those three that, that we'll hear where you take the, the pictures from the, the music or the music from the pictures and you, it, it just doesn't work as well. I think it's just a fantastic um, score. And I was so pleased in, I forget when it was, was it 2012 or 2014? When, uh, 2015, um, yeah. 2015 when with this, um, this proper release. I mean, to be fair, there isn't, a whole lot of music, you know, there's, there's certainly not, you know, the orchestral stuff that people might expect from, from John Williams. Most of it's some form of jazz, um, which in my opinion, it does very well anyway. Um, but um, it was so good to get this, this proper um, release of, of this um, fantastic score for me. And, and to be honest, it's probably one that, that lots of people don't know about. And I'll be honest, the first time I saw this film, I I had never heard of um, the score. And the opening credits come and, and it says music by John Williams. And I had to Google to make sure it was the same John Williams. Because I was like, I've never heard of this. What's this? And, and it was. And I was like, this is amazing. Um, and it was, it was, I knew I wanted to play a track from this, you know, um, as, as I've said, noir and, and stuff like that has, has been with me for a long time. And this film has been with me for, for quite a long time. And, and I sort of thought, well, what am I going to pick? And I listened through to the CD uh, a number of times to try and figure out what I wanted to pick. And I thought, well, I'm not going to pick one of the ones with lyrics, uh, with vocals. And then it was working out which of the other ones I wanted to choose. And, and personally, this, this particular version was the one that I thought felt um, nicest to me to play. And interestingly, um, it's um, by the Dave Grusin trio. And obviously, uh, Dave Grusin went on to um, do some brilliant scores himself, things like The Firm and On Golden Pond, I think. Um, but yeah, this, this particular track is, is just amazing. Um, I'd be interested, obviously, as someone who who loves John Williams, did those fantastic shows about John Williams. You know, what age you like this score? Do you like this film? You know, what are your thoughts? It's not one that I, I, I reach for, but I, I do think the, the theme is a gem. Um, the, the album presentation that we have from Quartet Records, it, it serves more as kind of this archival album. They're just taking everything that is available, putting it on the album, and like this is your definitive release. If you want everything, you get everything. Um, again, it's not something I usually reach for, but um, you know, I, I did have selections on the uh, Fitzwillie of Res Urban Records mm. uh, release, and so that was m more than fine for me. But um, what I was really curious though was out of all of the um the renditions that you had to choose for choose from you picked the Dave Grusin one which i i think it's just a it's just this kind of funky jazz uh version but it just it's so quintessential Dave Grusin especially the way it sounds 
it's very crystal clear and he has of course a very distinct um way of playing piano so um but yeah i mean like i said out of all the john williams scores you could pick for pick from i'm really glad you picked this one yeah um as i say for me i'm and i'm not saying it's one of my favorite ever john williams scores necessarily when you compare it to you know indiana jones star wars hook and all of that but it's certainly a score i will listen to regularly you know i'll happily put it on and and i guess because I like it so much, I'm quite happy with the the presentation on this um, sort of expanded or, or complete release. Um, yeah, sure, there's a lot of um, sort of sameness, I suppose. But as long as as long as the, the, the fundamentally the theme works for you, then then the CD works, and it and it certainly works for me. Um, and there is um, I forget it may be the first track on the album, but there is a track with John Williams playing the piano himself with this theme, isn't there? Um, and, and I did originally think, oh, well, maybe I'll pick that one because it's John Williams playing. And there was just something about, as I say, this particular track. Once I'd listened through a number of times, I thought it's it's this particular track for me that just has that that edge. You know, it is jazzy, but it is a little bit funky. I don't know. It's just, yeah, for me, it's just a, a lovely track, a great album and a brilliant film for, for anyone that hasn't seen this film go out there and see this film because it's it's just fantastic it's one of those where i'd love to see on the big screen you know in in 4k or something like that i just i just imagine it'd be great well with that here's music from the long goodbye by john williams uh, this comes off of quartet records 2015 release of the complete score which includes this Dave Grusin Trio's rendition of John Williams's theme from The Long Goodbye.
All right. Up next is a uh, a selection from a film I have uh, never seen. I know next to nothing about it. I know next to nothing about the composer. I've never heard this score before. I didn't even know it existed. So that's why I love doing these shows, Will. Um, you know, you guys, you, Joe, sometimes bring stuff onto this program that I haven't heard before. The all request shows. I'm I'm out there searching for tracks that people are are requesting. So uh, the floor is yours. Uh, tell us about the film. Tell us about the music, and tell us about the the track that. Uh, uh, that you want to play from the return of the musketeers. Uh, excellent. It's always nice to bring um, new music and, and new films, although I should say I will talk about the film a little bit. It may not be the best film in the world, um, but um, definitely a favourite um, uh, of mine growing up was in particular the first and second film of this trilogy. So you've got um, the uh, Three Musketeers, you've got the Four Musketeers, and then almost 15, 16 years later in 1989, you get The Return of the Musketeers. These were obviously based on the uh, novels by Alexandre Dumas uh, uh, about the French Musketeers. Um, and um, effectively, The Three Musketeers was um, the first two films, which they filmed back... Uh, at the same time and then split um, controversially split into two different films and then they managed to get everyone back together as I say for, for this film in 1989 which is based on uh, a novel 20 years after so it it is um, quite a good representation of, of that kind of thing where you've got these ageing um, uh, musketeers and, and they have some further adventures whilst being um, in the latter years of their lives. So it, it, the way they were able to leave that film, uh, sorry, it, uh, leave the gap between the, the Four Musketeers and then coming back and doing this actually does work rather than filming all three and then, you know, having makeup and prosthetics to make people look older. Um, and as I say, unfortunately for me, of the three of them, this is the weakest film. Um, and again, I rewatched this um, and there is a real sore point in that the villain or villainess in this um, is played by um, Kim Cattrall um, and yeah. <laughs> Not a fan. <laughs> uh, I think the worst thing is she can't really decide on what accent she's doing. Sometimes, sometimes it does sound a bit English, which is kind of what you'd expect because the, the, the rest of the cast in this film are all... Um, or lots of them are the, the, the greats of English cinema, people like Oliver Reed, uh, Frank Finlay, uh, Michael York, um, Richard Chamberlain. So they're, they're the four musketeers. But then you've got a whole host of other people, Christopher Lee. Um, uh, and, and, and yeah, just it, it's just of, of it's certainly the original two films. It's in that 70s period, a bit like... Murder on the Auto Express and, and stuff like that, where you basically gather together a whole host of, of really good actors and actresses and you make a, a fun film. And that's exactly what the first two are. The second one, which possibly is my favourite, The Four Musketeers, has a bit of an edge to it, maybe more so than the first one. You know, there's a character that, that is killed in the film. And, and so there's a bit more to it. Um, so of, of the three of them, that would be my favourite of the films. 
Um, but but yeah, in particular, Kim Cattrall in this film, yeah, doesn't doesn't work for me. I'm afraid. And and, and as I say, rewatching it, I was like, yeah, there's a reason I don't really watch this out of the three of them, and it's because it, she, yeah, um, enough said about her. Um, and and I would say even now, the, the first two films are so fun that nothing else comes close in terms of sort of, for me anyway, musketeer um, adaptions or adaptations. And I've seen the, whatever is the 93 one with the Michael Kamen score, which is a, a brilliant score, but, but that film for me, nah, not quite. Um, and then there was a more recent film, oh, maybe 2010, 2011, or maybe more recent than that, um, which I, uh, the only thing I remember about it is there was sort of flying ships or something. And yeah, again, that film for me didn't really do it. And, and the score was unmemorable because I can't remember who did it. Um, so, um, yeah. Yeah, there's the David Arnold one as well. Um, oh, yes. Which was the, the Musketeer yeah. in, in 2000 or 2001. Yeah. Um, again, the film's maybe not the best, but the score, brilliant score. Yeah, brilliant score. Um yeah, and and I think um, I think because they made such an impression on me, you know, they're so fun and enjoyable to watch. Um, even now, it, it almost feels like you know that the actors are having fun making this film. You, you know, you watch films sometimes where you just think everyone getting up in their musketeer outfits with their swords and having fights and and all of that. You just imagine watching it that they really had fun doing this. Um, and I think that that kind of helps sort of sell the whole thing. They're, they're not deadly serious. You know, there, there is quite a bit of humour in there, but it kind of goes along with the whole aesthetic of these films. Um, and, and I should say all three of them, for anyone that hasn't seen them, they're the Richard Lester films. So, um, so yeah, very fun films. And, and originally I thought um, for quite a long time I was probably going to have a track from The Four Musketeers because I thought that film for me is the best film and I thought therefore I'll, I'll pick a track from that <clears throat> and it was only actually when I re-listened to all three of the scores I thought actually this score probably out of all of them people will have heard least if they've heard any of them and the composer they may not know so I thought well actually maybe we'll play a track from that and and re-listening to this um, score for this um, for putting together this playlist, I was like, yeah, I, I really like this score and I'd forgotten, really forgotten how much I enjoy this score. And it's interesting because the three films have three different composers. Um, so even though the first film was filmed at the same time but split in two, the first film has um, Michel Legrand as the composer. The second film is Lalo Schifrin. Uh, and the third film... The, Musket the Return of the Musketeers, is a French composer called Jean-Claude Petit. Uh, and um, it was interesting how he got the role um, or, or the job. Um, and, it, and it was in part due to quota reasons. Um, so effectively, this was a, a co-production. Um, and for quota reasons, they had to have a French composer. Um, and therefore, they were originally going to go with Michel Legrand so that they could go full circle and have him come back and do the last film. Um, but for whatever reason, that didn't happen or, or couldn't happen. Uh, I couldn't find out why. I assume probably he was busy doing something else. Um, and and they felt, the, the producers and, and, and the director, Richard Lester, felt that it was um, 
this this new newish composer Jean Claude Petit, who was going to be the one that, that was going to do it. He had at the time been enjoying success on on two other films, Jean de Florette and Manon de Sors. So he was, uh, you know, in in terms of French cinema anyway, he was sort of flavour of the month, so to speak. So um, so they contacted him uh, and sort of said, you know, we'd like you to to do this film. Um, and and he met with um, met with Rich Lester and and sort of decided, yep, yeah, fine, I'll, I'll do this film. He had three weeks to compose the score, um, and he was uh, so there was no spotting session. So he was sent a cut of the film with music from the other two films. So Michel Legrand and Lalo Schifrin's scores were cut and pasted into this new film, and, and he was sent that. Um, and interestingly, I, I know that you hear lots of composers say they don't like directors talking in musical terms. So they like things like, I want it to feel like this. Or I want to have this emotion. On this occasion, Richard Lester specifically said to the director, I like irregular rhythms and I love irregular meters. So um, uh, I, I guess um, hopefully most most people understand this, but but. Predominantly, most music in general is written in four-four time. Um, some some of it is written in three-four time, which is waltz time, effectively. But predominantly, most of it is in four-four time, and you and you can sort of click along, and and it'll be one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, and there each bar you know has has those four beats. Whereas he specifically said, well, no, I like irregular meters, things like seven-four or five-eight. Um, so um, the composer obviously went away. As I say, he had three weeks to compose this and he was given the um, sort of task of, well, make sure it's not sort of standard time and, and um, it has to be quite sort of almost edgy like that. So in the end, um, the music you hear is predominantly in 7-8 and 6-8. 6-8 um, is, is fairly... Um, well used compared to seven eight, but it's still not not necessarily normally what you'd expect. Um, and I, I think, yeah, sure, it's not the the best score ever, but I I still think it, it's a it's a really decent score, particularly for for having been composed in in three weeks, um, and um, re listening to it um, again um, recently. I did, I did really enjoy it. And this this particular track, which um, uh, I think is called, um, is it Twenty Years Later? Um, yeah, is um, effectively the end credit music, but it, it features the, the the main theme, which which you also hear at the um, at the the start of the the album as well. I should say again. Uh, I think this is a quartet record CD, similar as the Long Goodbye, and and it's a uh, um, expanded or, or complete score. Uh, it says expanded on it, um, but it's it's a fantastic presentation, a great score, um, and it's just got a a zip and a liveliness to it. You know, the the sound of the orchestra is is sort of dancing around. It's um, yeah, I I was. Um, I'd, I'd forgotten how much I actually enjoyed this score. Um, and that's not to say that the scores for either of the other two films aren't, aren't great. There's some, there's some really good music in, in the, the Four Musketeers. 
there's a lovely scene where there's um, a fight on a frozen lake. So there's a bit of humour where they're sort of sliding about, but they're also having a sword fight at the same time. But there's some quite nice music from Schifrin in that. Um, and and in the first film, I always remember my dad loves um, the opening of the first film because it starts with a, um, a praxis fight between D'Artagnan and his father. And uh, I'm, I'm not technical in terms of film uh, and filming, but it's kind of done in this sort of weird slow motion uh, there's some effect and, and you get this sword fight with this sort of fairly bombastic music from Michel Legrand and and that sort of really captures you so um so all three all three scores are good I I just decided actually I think I think this score is probably worth worth everyone hearing um and I suspect lots of people won't have heard this and hopefully there'll be people that go away um listening to this particular track and think actually I'd quite like to own that um soundtrack well, based on that, I, I can't wait to hear this for the very first time as this is new to me. And, and as you said, maybe some of the listeners out there um, probably haven't heard this one either. Um, I don't know how many releases this one had, but um, again, Quartet Records, just a, a brilliant um, record label doing a lot of great work out there. And so I'm excited to hear Jean-Claude Petit's score to The Return of the Musketeers, released in 1989. This is the finale track, 20 Years Later.
music for film, TV and video games, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. All right, up next is uh, music from, uh, I know it's a classic score. I mean, would you classify it as classic score? Yes, but I'm probably sure lots of people wouldn't because mm. of the style and the sound of the score. Yeah, it, I mean, it was very popular during its time. I mean, the film was it was a big hit, won a lot of Academy Awards. Uh, it's The Piano by Michael Nyman. I think it's one of the most memorable scores written in the 90s. Um, it tragically didn't get an Academy Award nomination, probably wasn't going to win anyway. I'm pretty sure it was the same year that Schindler's List came out. But I, I don't think it's any less than Schindler's List. I think it's a fantastic score. But um, you've picked two tracks for a very specific reason from this score. So uh, I would like to hear your reasoning behind the selection of these uh, two cues. I think it's interesting. I talked about before... Um uh, sort of where my um, sort of love of, of film and, and music and stuff came from. I think, um, certainly from my memory, this was the only film score that my parents had. Um, and, and bearing in mind, my parents listened to, and still listen to, a phenomenal amount of music. There was always the radio on. Often it was, here in the UK, it's Radio 3 for classical music, so often it was that. Um, but equally, um, my dad's into jazz and, and some heavier stuff, Hendrix, um, Miles Davis, Grateful Dead, massive Grateful Dead fan. And then my mum likes sort of 70s rock and 80s stuff, you know, Eagles, Jackson Brown, James Taylor, Peter Gabriel, um, stuff like that. So there, there was a lot of music on um, and most of it wasn't film music. And then... I guess it was around 1993, was that when the film came out? I yeah, think. yeah. Um, yeah, so around 1993, um, this started appearing. And I'm pretty sure my mum had this on cassette. I mean, I, I can't remember whether it was on CD at the time, probably. But, I, well, I may be misremembering, apologies. But um, I have a feeling she had it on cassette and we had a cassette player in the car so I just, I have vivid memories of being around and, and about in the car. And this soundtrack was often played. Um, obviously, at that point, I hadn't seen the film. I didn't really know what the film was about. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, I was I was a lot older that um, I did eventually see the film. And actually, I'm, you know, uh, probably talk about the film in a minute, but I'm a massive Jane Campion fan. And I think it. It's a phenomenal film. And I, I talked about this with um, The Long Goodbye. This is the second of the three scores where I think the film and the score go so hand in hand that you can't separate them. You can't have one without the other. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's certainly not one of my favourite scores ever, so, you know, the fact that my mum played the score a lot, it was never, you know, it, it hasn't sort of um, ingrained in me so much that, that it is my favourite score. But um, there's something about it that is just almost magical. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not a fantastical score or anything like that, but um, th there is something about it that just... L listening to it again for, for this was just, um, was just magic. And 
I don't know what it's been like elsewhere. I think probably you might find for lots of people here in the UK, they might find it has been worn a little thin. Certainly at some point there was a particular bank in the UK that used it for an advertising campaign. Oh, did they really? Yeah. <laughs> and and so um, so it got played a lot um, in, in that sense. And, and I, I, I did worry about picking this track or, or this particular film because I thought there'll be people that think, oh, not that again, you know. Um, but but from my point of view, it's it's just a an absolute knockout film and and score, and it's it's interesting to learn the the sort of um, where, where this all came from, um, because he um, Michael Nyman was approached by as as I understand it from from looking at interviews and, and reading up, he was approached by Jane Campion before the film had even been filmed. Uh, and he was, I think, given the script and basically she said to him, I want you to um, score my film because I think your music is, is what this film needs. And so he he obviously read the script and, and uh, my understanding is he was captivated by that and went away and immediately wrote some music, which um, then started to form the basis of, of ultimately what the score was. So he... Um, he had ideas in his head straight away of, of what this film needed. But um, again, a bit like maybe um, Robert Altman telling John Williams, well, I want specifically this um, as the basis of, of the, the score. On, on this occasion, he knew that Holly Hunter, who, who plays the, the mute um, lady of the film, he knew that she was going to play the piano in the film. So, um, uh, and I'm sure everyone knows this, but, uh, you know, for anyone that doesn't who or who hasn't seen the film, when she plays the piano in the film, that is her playing. Now, the stuff you actually hear on the soundtrack is, is Michael Nyman because he um, re-recorded that. Um, so he, um, Michael Nyman, knew that when he was writing the piano music for the film, he had to write it in such a way that um, she was going to be able to play it pretty much. So he sat down and watched her playing pieces by Bach and Mozart and stuff like that to get an understanding of, you know, I suppose how good she was and, and you know, what, what she seemed really um, adept at playing and, and, and stuff like that. So he could then write music that, that was going to suit her and her style, so to speak. Um, and, and what you get very much is is a, a score of two halves because you get this absolutely beautiful orchestral, uh, I'll talk about the orchestration in a second, but you get this orchestral music and you get this then simple piano music and it, and it's very contrasting. And, and I like the idea that it's, it is so different. You know, you get, and as we'll hear, and, and that's why I like these two tracks back to back as you'll hear, you get this sudden influx of, of the strings and the saxophone in, in this um, in this first piece. And then as that tails off, suddenly you just get the piano with the with the beautiful um, uh, the heart for pleasure first, the, the beautiful melody from that. And it's just the the absolute um, black and white of those two back to back just just is absolutely fantastic. Um, and and as I say, the orchestration itself is, is quite interesting because um, I think, um, as I understand it, it, it's mainly just strings 
and then you've got um, three different saxophones, some flute, and then obviously Michael Nyman playing the piano. Um, so it's not it, not in any way a sort of a, a normal um, orchestration, but I think it I think it works really well, um, and 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 it still sounds to me anyway. It still sounds great today, um, and it's just. I think it, it, it captures the film so well. Just even just listening to or, or indeed playing that the heart asks for pleasure, just listening to that, you just feel the the absolute raw emotion of that. And and to watch her in the film playing that sat on the on the uh, or sat or stood at the piano on the on the beach is is just just absolutely amazing. Um, and and it is interesting because he said um, that he referenced a Scottish folk song. I think it's called "Gloomy Winters Noir." My Scottish isn't great, but um, so he references that tune as, sort of as the basis of of the heart asks pleasure first. Um, but yeah, for me, it's it's again one of those films and and, and scores that that go together, and it's just. The, the whole film is such a knockout with the performances from Harvey Keitel, from Holly Hunter and um, is it Anne Paquin, the, the young girl? That's right. Yeah, yeah I think she just, still remains the youngest Academy Award yes. winner of all time. Yeah, she does. And and Holly Hunter won a, a, an Oscar and didn't say a word. I just, the film is amazing. And, and I know that my mum loves the film. I know it's still a, a, a favourite film of hers. Um, I should have probably asked her before this. I don't know <laughs> why she had the soundtrack. I guess she had the soundtrack because she liked the film so much. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it's an emotional score, an emotional film, and and you feel it. You you absolutely feel it. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. And and you know, and I was talking earlier about you know maybe it's a classic score. I think. More so, it's um, like one of the most, I think, popular scores. It kind of transcends the film and also through our little film music community, becoming one of those soundtracks. And as you said, that you know your your mom had a cassette, but I'm pretty sure that everybody who uh, saw the film um, recognized the 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 score right away and would be something that they would go and pick up. So you know everybody would say that they'd have maybe. 10 soundtracks on their entire collection and it would be like Titanic, you know, the piano, Star Wars, you know, all the regular things that you would then see like in bargain bins in, uh, you know, thrift shops years later. And I've seen numerous copies of, of the piano in these thrift shops, even here in town. So, I mean, it was a very, it was a popular soundtrack, popular album, and it's a popular film as well. I mean, it was a small movie that made a boatload of cash and won a ton of Academy Awards and, and awards also outside of the outside of the Academy. But I think that um, poor Michael Nyman just, I think he got screwed by the Academy. Um, and I, I really do think it's one of the best scores of the 90s. It's a haunting score. Now, it's not one that I had uh, at the time when the film came out. I mean, it really wasn't as like a soundtrack fan per se at that time. And I didn't pick up the album until um, I think it was Michael Nyman released it through his own label, if I'm not mistaken. I think somewhere around 2004, and it was like an either an expanded release or something along those lines. But I only had um, a short suite 
um, that was re-recorded by John Debney for um, an album based on like scores that feature mostly piano um, on, on Verez Saraband Records. It's a lovely album and, and it features score and classical music from, you know, The English Patient, um, Portrait of a Lady, The Piano and Shine. I think those are the four films represented anyway. Um, but it just, you're right. The, it doesn't, I don't think it gets the respect that it deserves. Um, Michael Nyman definitely doesn't get the respect that he deserves as a film composer. And I will say that I rarely play his stuff on, on the show. And that's not because I don't like him. It's just, I don't really, um, I really haven't explored his career the way I should. So the fact that you, um, brought these two tracks, um, on the show, um, I'm, I'm just glad that we were able to finally, you know, after all these years, uh, play some, uh, more Michael Nyman. I think the, the last one I might've played, geez, I can't even remember. Um, it was probably that Ethan Hawke, um, Oh, Gattaca. Gattaca, which I think is brilliant yes. as well. Yeah. But that might've yep. been the last Michael Nyman score <laughs> I think I've played <laughs> on the show. So. Yeah. yeah. And, and also worth noting as well for anyone that, that does venture out into classical music after this film, uh, at some point later, he, Michael Nyman, then um, actually creates a piano concerto based on the, the score for this. So there is, I think it's on Naxos Records, um, or, or um, there is a, a CD certainly out there that, that has a sort of, a, I think it's a half hour, 40 minute, three movement piano, or three or four movement piano concerto that is based on the music from, from this. Well, I'm going to be all up in that after after we're done here. I'm excited to hear that. I always love different interpretations of film music, especially in the classical world. So, um, but yeah, I'm excited to to play these two tracks. And you're right; they, they couldn't be more um, uh, different, um, but they complement each other and they complement the film um, uh, quite well as well. So, this is a a wild and distant shore, and the heart asks for pleasure first from the uh, extremely popular film score from 1993, The Piano by Michael Nyman.
Okay, our next selection. Um, I think this one is a bona fide classic score. <laughs> um, it's uh, Planet of the Apes from Jerry Goldsmith. Um, I'm trying to figure out what could be said about this score that hasn't been said before, but I'm really, really interested in hearing your uh, your personal opinion about um, quite possibly one of the most unique out there scores that has ever been written. And I don't think a score of this sort has ever been topped. Yeah. A very, very interesting score. Um, I, um, I was never, um, as big a Goldsmith fan as I am now. And it's, it's almost, you know, it's certainly up there with John Williams. It almost sometimes overtakes for me. I almost maybe listen to a bit more Goldsmith than I do Williams. Um, and I think something changed. Um, and I'll talk about um, being at school um, in just a second. But my uh, up to this point, my um, experiences with Goldsmith really had been Star Trek. So I was a big Trekkie, um, watched all the films, TV series, all of that. Um, and so I knew uh, Jerry Goldsmith as that sort of romantic, epic space guy. You know, that's what he did. And and that was great. Um, and when I was at school studying music, we had a brilliant, absolutely brilliant music teacher, Miss Wright. Um, and um, obviously, you know, doing music in school, you have to teach just everything, you know, from rock music to film music and whatnot. And we had um, a massive... Um, grey book it was like a bible and effectively that was everything that was the syllabus for for the the course this is i'm talking about for anyone in the uk i'm talking about gcse music and there was this massive um grey book and it had all sorts of stuff in anyway at some point halfway through this um halfway through doing music we come to this bit in the book that's about film music um and bearing in mind as well at that point i had never seen um, composers uh, or conductors scores so although I might have played in orchestras I'd only ever seen the clarinet part you know or I'd ever only ever seen piano scores um, and so we came to this film music bit and there were I think four um, scores in there um, there was a, um, a piece of music from the television show Inspector Morse uh, by uh, uh, Baron Fairlow, I think. Um, there was the flying scene from E.T. by John Williams. There was another piece which has been bugging me for ages and I can't think what it was. And the final piece, the fourth one, was the main title from Planet of the Apes. And so um, when we got around to um, sort of listening to these pieces and then sort of following with the score and studying things like, you know, what the orchestra was doing and, and how the music was used... Um, in in the particular the, the the film or the TV episode, um, it was fascinating, and and the fact that this piece of music was Jerry Goldsmith, just absolutely blew my mind, because um, you've got an orchestra that includes things like um, xylophones, um, bells, water drop bars, boom bams, an electric harp, electric bass clarinet, a bass slide whistle, a Tibetan horn, 10 foot Tibetan horn. Just the, the orchestration on this is just ridiculous. And, and he's, 
he is asked to compose this this score for I suppose what what you might have called a sort of maybe a uh, a sort of a blockbuster science fiction back in the day. I I mean I don't necessarily know how it was received at the time, but but certainly now we think of certainly the more recent Planet of the Ape um, trilogy. We think of those as as sort of modern day blockbuster sci-fi epic films. Um, and so I'm assuming it was it was similar back in the day. Certainly it it probably felt a, a lot weirder back then because you had this this first story um, on show. And the fact that A. Goldsmith came up with a score of this style, but also the fact that the studio or the directors or the producers said, yep, that's exactly the kind of score we want for this kind of film, because I'm sorry, you're not going to get that kind of score written today. And, and, and I should say the score is uh, an avant-garde score written in a uh, 12-tone music style. So without getting too technical, you've obviously got um, 12 notes. So you've got the, if you imagine the white and black notes and the piano from uh, middle C all the way up to B, you've got 12 notes. So 12 tone music uses those 12 notes, but not, it doesn't focus on a particular key or particular note. It, it uses all of those notes, um, uh, basically the, the 12 chromatic notes. Um, and it gives a kind of an eerie, unsettled, um, just weird feeling. Um, and and I think for, for me, getting Jerry Goldsmith, this, studying this at school, looking at this, listening to this, that was the point where I went, okay, I want to know more about this composer because he doesn't just do Star Trek. He does absolutely weird-ass stuff. And and I think there's plenty of other scores. You know, you look at something like um, uh, Chinatown, which oh, my mind's failing me now, but that's the one with, with a whole weird set of orchestration and stuff. And he's always been quite forefront in using electronics and, and synths and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, and it just, it as, as weird as it is, it 100% captures the... The sort of feeling and the ethos of this this film i mean it's um yeah it's surrealistic it um as i say because it's 12 tone it sort of abandons any keys and and it's just dissonant um there's there's an array of ostinato techniques that that just keep things moving it's just it's just such a weird score but in the same breath it's just such an amazing score and i still can't believe that um, such a score was accepted. That that whoever um, whoever it was that eventually signed off on this, whether back in the day it was purely the director or whether the studio had a say, but I don't know. It it just for me it, it it's just so odd to have such just weird music i mean weird in a sense of, of of film scores because if if we go back to some of the music we've already heard you know robin hood and and, and ivanhoe that that is what i suppose we think of as classic film score um and so it has a sound that goes with it and so come round to um when this film was released we we get something that's very sort of avant-garde and and it it's more like um the classical music of the time you know there were i think it was um 
Schoenberg, I think from memory, it was Schoenberg that came up with the 12 tone idea. Um, and so it's, it's very much a, a, a classical music thing from that, that sort of period. But yeah, just an amazing score, I think. And still today, um, yeah, I, I don't know whether, whether you've got anything to, to add or say or whether it's even a particular favourite of yours, but, but it's just a, a fantastic score. Again, it's not one that I reach for to listen to, but I do appreciate its brilliance. And I think I had quite an awakening with this score when it was released in that box set a few years ago through La La Land Records and the remastering was absolutely uh, fantastic. Um, reading through the liner notes is also quite um, interesting. Um, you know, Jerry Goldsmith um, even mentioned that he was a, he was a serial composer. So he enjoyed that style immensely. But I think in the, the late 1960s into the seventies was a, you know, up until 1977 was a great chance for, for composers to experiment. It was, it was looked upon as, as something that, you know, you'd expect from film scores and, you know, composers testing different types of musical techniques. And I don't know why Goldsmith went down the route that he did, but I think that I, I and, I, and this wasn't going to be, or I don't think he was set up as, let's say a franchise uh, film. I mean, it was released in February of 1968, um, but it went on to be a critical and financial success, which then led to, you know, TV shows and I mean, about four or five different sequels and, 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 and yeah, it was this whole franchise and of course there's remakes and remakes of remakes. So, um, but I do appreciate, I do appreciate the composing style, um, all the weird sounds. I think it's great, but I, I think also what I, what I do appreciate about Jerry Goldsmith and in, in most of his scores, especially when he's doing some of the weird stuff, it just, it sounds like Jerry Goldsmith. It doesn't sound like anybody else. It also sounds extremely modern. I mean, this could be put into a film these days and it would still sound just as good and, and appropriate. I don't think any of his scores necessarily sound dated. Um, Goldsmith was always Goldsmith, whether he was working on radio, TV, or in film, or even in the concert world. Um, there's no mistaking, you know, who writes these scores when you hear it. Um, and I and I noticed that listening to uh, the re-recordings of uh, Thriller, uh, some of the radio stuff that I've heard on the Goldsmith Odyssey podcast. I'm like, well, this stuff could have been right out of a, a 1980s or 90s Goldsmith score. So he never really um, changed, for the lack of a better word, but he always was um, inventing. He was always looking for just something new that he can put in one of his scores. But I mean, when you think about something new, this was something new and you know, banging on um, uh, metal bowls and and trying to come up with the most crazy weird sounds that he could for this. I trying to figure out where the inspiration came from. I I, I mean I, I I don't remember whether it comes out in the liner notes or not, or whether there was an interview with him. But I mean, this is probably one of the most inspiring film scores of all time. His um, from what I understand, his idea was that um, early on he understood from his point of view that he would have to um, get his music to speak almost in a primal way and be mm. ape-like. Mm. And I think his idea for that, whether 
you know, it would be the same as anyone else's idea. His idea was to to look at modernist composers and and do that avant-garde style of scoring. But I, I find it odd that um, potentially people at that time would have been listening to things like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or something, and they wouldn't have ever heard this kind of music, potentially. And they would have gone to the cinema, seen this film, and had this... I mean, particularly, you listen to this main title, which is what I chose, just... Imagine the film opening and this is the sound you hear. I don't know. Just I would have loved to have been there and, and seen people's faces. Yeah, and I and I think what this score does is it definitely gives the the film its voice. And I think that's all you can expect from a composer. And whether you're doing that through an orchestration or or a melody, um, you know, if you can just kind of you you have that piece of music or that that certain style that's going to absolutely you know take you back to that film i think then you've been successful as a, as a film composer and even though there's not a main theme per se there's instrumentation um orchestration in this in this score that just it screams planet of the apes although you know you can hear some of the influences uh return in um the the challenge I think it was 1982. Uh, very similar with the his you know percussion um, uh, techniques, but again, it's 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 Goldsmith. That's what he did. Um, but yeah, this one is. I mean, you know, people say that you know the film score came alive in 1977 with with John Williams, um, but I mean, you you he had never heard anything like this back in 1968. Oh yeah, completely. Um... Yeah, and as I say, it 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 was the score for me that brought me closer to um, Jerry Goldsmith, and 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 gets me to say that he is for me up there with with the best of the best. Yeah, I would I would agree. He's on my Mount Rushmore of, uh, of film oh, yes. composers for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. here's the uh, the dynamite main title, which I'm pretty sure shocked audiences back in 1968 from the classic. Franklin J. Schaffner film, Planet of the Apes.
from Kitchener, Ontario, Canada, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. And you're listening to the flagship show with Eric Woods. All right, we're going to close off part one of this uh, two-part series with uh, our guest today, William Welch, who has brought this wonderful playlist to us. And I hope you really enjoyed today's program. Uh, part two uh, will be available um, uh, sometime down the road. Um, but we're going to conclude with, uh, I, I would say it's a, man, it's just another classic for film music fans. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know whether this is something that, you know, the general audience would know, but it was a very popular miniseries and contains a film score, a, a rare award-winning film score for Basil Polidorus. Uh, he won the Emmy for this. It's a lonesome dove, fantastic score uh, with an absolutely brilliant theme. So uh, tell us why you brought this uh, track with you today. Um, I am a fantastic uh, Western uh, movie fan, um, but interestingly, that's not necessarily the reason um, uh, that I, I first came came across this TV series and and the film, but. Um, Growing up, it was it was definitely a thing. I, I know my dad loves westerns, but I think he gets that from his mum, sort of my granny, um, and and granddad. And I I don't know. I just I always have memories of watching westerns, and and I remember as a kid having a um, a gun and a holster and a hat, and I don't know why, because it seems a bit of an odd thing. Uh, for a kid growing up in the late 80s, early 90s, and someone in, in the UK to, to be interested in that kind of thing. But I don't know, I was. Something happened at some point. Um, and and just, yeah, it's a shame they don't make enough of them these days. Although, to be fair, often when they do, they're, they're still pretty good um, good films. But, um, I yeah, I love a Western, love watching. Even now, you know, I'll watch old westerns, maybe even some that I've never seen before. They're often on on some of the obscure uh, movie channels and whatnot over here in the UK. Um, sort of Sunday afternoons and stuff, there'll be like five back-to-back westerns with, you know, whoever. Um, but anyway, on to Lonesome Dove. So um, again, going back to being at school, I when I studied um, history... Um, and I love history, but I love things like Vikings and Romans and Greeks and stuff. One of the topics we did for history was the Wild West. And I'm like, yeah, I, I kind of like the Wild West, but to me, it's not history. Do you know what I mean? Um, and um, our history teacher, who oh, I forget what her name was, but but she clearly was, was into films and, and TV and stuff. And at some point, uh, I can't remember exactly why, obviously she wanted to um, sort of show us you know, an idea of, of what it was like in the West or, or something like that. In any event, she chose to show an episode of Lonesome Dove. I'd never heard um, of Lonesome Dove, nor had I seen it. And so I saw this episode and <clears throat> it absolutely blew me away. And and I wish I could remember exactly what happened, but obviously I went home and was like, we've got to watch this. And, and I think we probably borrowed the... Um, video it was back then I should think from the library or something and, and and I watched the whole series at home and and it was just an amazing series and 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 it says um when, when I looked look, looked up the series it says that at the time an estimated 26 million people 
tuned in to watch this. I think it was, was it 89 or 90 this was yeah, first Yeah, it was on? 1989. So this is, I, don't, I mean, I'm not sure whether you had the same uh, things in, in, in the UK, but, you know, like TV movies are these big, they did these miniseries where they'd actually throw a ton of money at them and have huge stars show up. I mean, those brought in huge, huge numbers. I mean, there were TV movies, but then there are like these miniseries like, you know, Roots or uh, North and South and things of that sort that were just absolutely huge ratings uh, uh, grabs and they were super popular. And they throw, like I said, they throw tons of money at these projects. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm struggling to remember whether that was kind of a thing we had. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it was. I, Obviously, something I didn't see at the time, but but something I've seen since. There was a a, a big series in um, I think in the mid eighties, The Jewel in the Crown, which I think was shown on on ITV over here or something. Um, and and I think there was there was a resurgence in TV because you had things like the um, the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes series and and stuff like that that was really putting a lot of money into good quality television. Um, so so stuff was happening. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I was just blown away by this and, uh, it's funny. I thought, um, obviously, uh, as far as I could tell, it's, it's not streaming anywhere. And I, I just popped onto a, um, uh, onto YouTube just to have a look and, and I've managed to find it as, as episodes on, on, on there and, and, and watched the first one. And I thought I'll watch a bit of it and, you know, I'll probably, that'll be enough. And I think they're an hour and a half, aren't they? And I watched it and an hour and a half later, I was like, that is still amazing. And it absolutely blew me away for for um, for another time. And it's so weird as well, looking at Tommy Lee Jones, because my impression of Tommy Lee Jones is always he's been old. He always looks like he's been old. But when you look at him in this, he's got this big gray beard and he looks so young. And it's, it's, it's clearly that he's trying to look a bit older with the gray beard and stuff, but just compared to how I picture him, he, he's just so young, but it's a absolute star, star studded cast because you've got Robert Duvall, Tommy Lee Jones, Danny Glover, Diane Lane, um, Angelica Houston. Yeah. Just knockout. And, uh, and the score goes with it. It's not, you know, I think of some of my favorite sort of Western scores and it's not got that Elmer Bernstein sort of, um, you know, bum, but ba dum but ba dum it, It's not that kind of score, but then it's also not that kind of program. You know, that's why I was so surprised that even now still watching it, I was transfixed by it because it's, it's sort of day to day life almost in the West, isn't it? It's not, you know, it's not the, um, the sort of glamorous, um, gunfights and all of that, that that you kind of get from things like Magnificent Seven. So the score has to be something different. But um, but it's just, I don't know how you'd describe it. I suppose it's more sort of Americana. It's that sort of maybe Aaron Copeland-like, just sort of horns or trumpets, whatever it is, I forget now, but it's just, just a lovely, lovely sound. And this main theme, which um, which is sort of, almost like a suite, I suppose, because it's just over five minutes, but it's just a, a great opening to the CD and and just, I don't know, just a, a lovely score. And to get um, this kind of composer to do this kind of score for a, a, a mini series, I think it's um, very good. And as far as I'm aware, and unless you're going to correct me, 
he hadn't scored a Western before that's this. That's correct. Yeah. And that's why I think um, it works the way that it does and why it doesn't sound like everybody else. This is, you know, Basil Polidorus's version of a Western. I mean, it still feels like a Western score, but you're right. It's a little more laid back. It's, it's not like, it's not like the big country or, or, or high noon or, um, you know, you, you, your typical Western. And of course it doesn't even enter any Omarikone territory, but it is a very Americana sounding, um, score, but it, 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 it just feels more like it captures the human drama more so than anything else. And, but it's his unique take at it. And again, to grab somebody like Basil Polidorus and, and have him write something at this point in his career, which, I mean, he's still quite popular, you know, to, to write four enormous scores because each part it's like you said, they're about 90 minutes each. It's a daunting task, but it all worked together. Everything came together. Uh, this, this, this show was, uh, I think it, close to 20 Emmy nominations. I think it won half of them. It was that celebrated. And, you know, one of the winners was Basil Polidorus. And as I said, it was one of the rare nominations for him in anything and a win for him in his career. So at least he had that. I think it feels like a very personal score. Yeah. I mean, I I, I don't know. I, I, I haven't seen him interviewed about this or, you know, read, read him talking about this, but I just get the impression he... He put a lot into it, and it, um, for me, it absolutely captures the essence of the 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 film, the the program that he's writing music for. And like you said, I think he wrote nearly four hours of music um, for for all of this, and I think that's um, that's an incredible amount of music for for something that is, you know, this, this kind of program. Um, but I think it helped that um, Westerns were having a little bit of a resurgence at the time. If I remember correctly, you'd had things like um, Unforgiven prior to this and you had um, Cosner's Wire Earp quite soon after this. So I, I think Westerns were, were slowly coming back um, into people's sort of um, consciousness. But um, yeah, I just think the whole everything about this captured captured everyone's um imagination yeah it's interesting to read um even in the liner notes about you know basil's inspiration and what and how he tackled the score is that he he went more for um kind of those folk instrumentations um for kind of the secondary characters but um which i mean gives it that kind of authentic feel of a western but saved the the big orchestral underscore for the principal uh, characters and, and as well as keeping that kind of big Western sweep for the really huge, um, epic emotional, uh, moments in the, um, in the miniseries. Um, but it's interesting to, to see that even though we have an expanded release of the, of the score, it's only 14 tracks long. There are some previously unreleased tracks, and this is on an out-of-print, highly collectible Sonic Images Records um, album. I'd be curious to see if anybody would ever tackle um, the complete score, because that would be quite eye-opening. Much like Intrada did with uh, Bill Conti's um, 
north and south, you know, do separate book releases of them. I mean, you could do four separate releases of Lonesome Dove, but I'm not sure who owns it. I'm not sure about the popularity of the score. I, I know that film music fans consider this to be one of Polidorus's uh, greatest achievements. So um, it would be great to, I mean, especially since the Sonic Images Records album is long out of print. Um, and that was released back in 1998. I think it's uh, it's due for a, a re-release. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, I've got the original soundtrack album uh, as opposed to the expanded one that you're referring to. So, yeah, the one I've got is only the 10 tracks. Um, and it's it's such a shame because um, I think probably... I mean, it's always difficult knowing which or, or understanding why certain film scores get expanded or complete releases. But I think the film score community would, would absolutely lap this up. So if it was something that was possible to do, I'd, I'd love someone like, um, yeah, La La Land or Entrada or, or someone to come along and, and do like a, yeah, like a four part anthology collection or, or a box set or, or something of, of all of the music. I think that'd be um, absolutely fantastic if, if someone could do that. Yeah, and I hope it gets done. But you know, even saying that, I mean, the the if you can find the fourteen track album, it's great. But even the one that you have, I mean, it it really plays the the highlights of the score, and it plays uh, extremely well. And of course, it both albums have this uh, this brilliant theme. It's just such a great theme. Um, but Polydorus just had a, a a real knack for uh, for melody and hitting that right melody, and uh, he did a great job for. The theme from the 1989 television miniseries, The Lonesome Dove.
And with that, we end part one of this two-part conversation with William Welch. We actually talked for close to four hours, so I decided that we should split this episode into two parts, much like what I did with Joe Wiles' show. So if you enjoyed part one, part two will be available shortly with more great film music chosen exclusively by William Welch himself. If you are interested in joining the Cinematic Sound Radio Patreon family community, please go to patreon.com slash cinematic sound radio, and there you can sign up for one of the tiers. And as I said at the beginning of the program, the lowest tier is only a dollar a month. And we thank you very much for your support, and we thank all of our patrons for their support of this podcast. Well, until next time, I'm Eric Woods. Thank you very much for listening to The Flagship Show here on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. Until next time, take care, wherever you are in this world, and happy listening.